God remains in complete control. So no matter whatever situation you face, even what you brought in here today, maybe you got a lot of curveballs this week. Maybe it seems like there's this one issue in your life just just keeps hounding, coming after you and coming after you, and it just and you find yourself losing sleep over it. Maybe there's a relationship. Maybe there's a person. Maybe there's a workplace. Maybe it's a parent or son or child. Maybe it's a neighbor. And it just seems like there's no resolution to this thing. It's like you've done all the stuff that you're supposed to do, yet it continues to just cloud your memory banks. When we are rattled, God remains in complete control of our lives. Complete control. It's not like he woke up this morning because he never slumbers in her sleeps. It's not like he's frantically pacing heaven right now, looking at your life situation. Like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? God is always in complete control. I just wish for me and for you and for all of us that that would be the, the Instagram photo that we take of God every morning. Like, and we could like it and like it and like it and like it and like it. It's like, I wish that would flow through our Instagram feed every morning, we would wake up and we would see that picture of God in complete control, looking at the mess that we find ourselves in, looking at our lives, looking at the uncertainty and say, I got it under control. Yet we are humans and we battle against flesh and blood. We battle against anxiety. We battle against worry. We battle against fear. And until we grab a hold of who God is, then we'll never gain victory. And so our hope is this, that as we walk through this world, as we face adversity and trials, that we truly would look to God first instead of the circumstances. Because believe it or not, your situation, the answer is on the way, even though you don't think it is. And even though you might have already received a verdict from the judge, you might have received a termination notice from your boss. You might have received a no from the workplace. You might have received um, a a red letter uh, notice from the bank. Even though those things have been written, God is still in complete control and he's still working on your behalf. He's coming and he can't be stopped. And sometimes we just need reminded of that. Let me just give you a snapshot, trying to take an example as a father uh, to his child. Um, Our children have been athletes and uh, are athletes. And so we've spent many, many, many times at basketball courts, volleyball courts, golf courses, baseball diamonds, volleyball courts, softball fields, and track and field. And and it's been a regular part of our life. We've used it to um, to build relationships, cheer our kids on, and to help them develop um, ability to live in the world and be a bright light. And, And I recall this one encounter, one of our children was was heading to a, an, a sporting event. And so um, it was at Prairie Heights. And if you're familiar at all with the, the Fairfield community, our conference is you go to Ohio and you turn left. It's like, it, it's way, way, way out there. And so most of the, the, the way games are an hour away. You just, it's part of the life. So we were headed to, to an away game to Prairie Heights to, to observe one of our kids play in the sporting event. And so we're on our way, and you know, we want to get there you know, 20 minutes early to, to, to get a good seat. And so on the way there, we're about at Westview. And if you know where Westview is at, it's about 20, 25, 30 minutes from our home. And so we're there, and we receive this text from, from our child that says, uh, can you bring the blue uniform? I brought the white. I need the blue 
And, and it's just one of those times we're absent-minded. We make those kind of mental errors, and everything had been checked off except for the color of the uniform, and from time to time we're human. And, and so I'm in the vehicle thinking, and I begin to calculate that, boy, on the other end is this frantic child thinking, if I don't have the right uniform, I can't play. It's like this is an adversity that I'm facing. And so I'm the father. I'm receiving this frantic request, and I'm thinking, I could probably make this happen. And so we, we turned around, and, and, and we're in our vehicle, and we head back quickly, very quickly, very, 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 very quickly back to our home and, and to pick up this uniform. And so we, Ann rushes into the house. We grab this uniform. I'm doing the math and thinking, this, this could happen. It could be time warp, but th- th- this could happen. So hop in the vehicle, and I'm driving as very, very quickly as possible to get to the other side of Indiana. Meanwhile, our child is waiting, you know, rattled, just wondering and and just waiting for dad, the father, to come through. And all I remember is a blur the whole way there, just just a blur. And and, and so, to be quite frank, just the part of me, it's just the nature of me, we're going to make this happen. We're going to make this happen. Now, just pause for a second. Picture the child on one end wondering, does the father see this? Is it possible? It's just not possible. I just drove this far in the vehicle and the bus, and I know how long it takes. Is it, is it possible for this to happen? Is, is it even? And make a long story short, just picture the, the, the father on the other end say, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. I'm coming and I can't be stopped. I'm coming and I can't be stopped. And, and there's this picture. We arrived, handed the, the uniform, quickly dressed, and this person, our child, played in this game. Now, picture your situation for a second. No matter how rattled you might be, it's like, it's an impossibility. Just picture this God who's not a human father, who, who, who has the ability to snap his fingers and, and, and to move in a person's heart. He, on the other end, isn't frantically coming after you. He's just going to press a button. He's just going to show up. He's going to answer your request. And today we jump in this text where on one end, literally, life and death situation. God's people have been handed an edict that says, you're dead. There's no, we can't change it. There's nothing we can do about it. Meanwhile, God's sitting in the throne room of heaven saying, I'm coming and I can't be stopped. Just hold on. Grab your Bibles and let me show you this incredible picture in Scripture that will leave you today um, in a spirit of we have hope. Turn to the book of Esther. We've been walking through Esther two weeks ago, and we left off. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one, because we're going to look at a lot of Scripture today. You will need a Bible today. This is our gift from Grace Community if you don't have one. But please grab a Bible. We left off two weeks ago. Esther was, became queen. She's a Jew. She's in a Persian palace. Her husband and king, Xerxes, doesn't know she's a Jew. Meanwhile, her father, who, who became her adopted father because she was an orphan, is pacing the streets of the city gate, wondering if they'll ever find out that his daughter, who's now queen, that's a Jew, is in the palace of a Persian. That shouldn't happen. He's fearful for her life. And we left the scene that he's pacing in front of the city gate, wondering, what's going to happen to my daughter? Meanwhile, the king loves his, this, this woman because of her beauty, doesn't know she's a Jew. And if he finds that out, listen, if he finds that out, we're in trouble. 
And then we jump into the text. Mordecai, the father of Esther, is pacing the streets. And this is what he was doing. Look at Esther chapter 2 and look at verse 19. Stand with me. We're going to read Esther chapter 2 verses 19 to 23. Esther chapter 19 or chapter 2 verses 19 to 23. Let's read this together. Ready, read. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, don't they sound like big dudes? Bigthana and Teresh, I'll tear your head off. Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. You may have a seat. Snapshot. Mordecai gets word that two people want to assassinate the king. So he tells his daughter, who's queen, Mordecai's a Jew, Esther's a Jew. Hey, go tell king, your husband, that there's these two dudes that are going to take him out. She goes and tells. They find out. They take the two dudes. They impale them and put them at the end of the city. Yet we don't see where anyone gets credit for it because normally when the assassination attempt took place, the Persian law says we will reward the person and we will give the person something who thwarted the assassination attempt. But when we look at the text, nothing good happens to Mordecai. But it was recorded in the annuals of the king. In other words, someone wrote it down that there was this guy by the name of Mordecai that gave the word that saved a life. Yet, the story doesn't record that Mordecai gets any credit for it. And you wonder, why? Why not? And I'm sure Mordecai was wondering that very same thing. However, we're still faced with the scenario of Esther's a Jew, Mordecai's a Jew, the people of God are in exile, How in the world is God going to work and what will happen if Xerxes ever finds out that Queen Esther is a Jew? Let me just say this. We can't be blinded by the physical barricades that we find ourselves surrounded with today. Sometimes it feels like there's no way out. It seems like it's too complex. It's too big. An edict has been drawn on our lives The court has ruled. The termination notice has been given. And there is a written record. Like somewhere, someone wrote something down that says, this can't be changed. You receive the letter in the mail and you open up and say, this isn't going to change. How in the world could God ever change this edict that has been written? Timing is everything. And God is at work even when the future seems uncertain. So what happens? Look at chapter 3. Move ahead. Four years later, after these guys were impaled, the assassination attempt was thwarted, Mordecai doesn't get recognized, Queen Esther is still there, and they don't know that she's a Jew. Four years later, chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agiite, 
elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. Like, what? What's going on? Why is he getting honored? For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. It's the strongest way to say angry. He was scornful in chapter 3 and verse 5. Verse 6 says this, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, in the month of Nisan, pure, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed. He doesn't call them Jews, by the way. Just a bunch of people among all the peoples in all the province of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people. And they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give my own 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamathoth, the Agagite. And he said, the enemy of the Jews, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you what? Please. So picture this. Haman is enraged with Mordecai. He can't stand like every day he walks out and and Mordecai says, I'm not bowing down to you. Everyone else does, but Mordecai refuses to. And it says that he is angry. He has scorned towards this man. And so he becomes obsessed with Mordecai. And not only Mordecai, but he wants to destroy all his people. So he goes before the king and says, we need to do something about this. He says, we need something about these people. Not once does he mention that they are Jews. He just says, this group of people. And so he wants to kill and annihilate the Jews. Imagine for a second, let's pull away. Imagine if you're a Jew during this time. Imagine living perpetually in the shadow of imminent catastrophe that you will die one day. Imagine waking up every moment of your life and every morning of your life and knowing this could be the day that I die. I could die. Imagine gathering with other friends and relatives and saying, we're going to die. We're going to die. Imagine thinking there's nothing that can change because the, the edict has been drawn. It's been written. The king's ring has sealed it. It's been notarized and it's handwritten and it's been sent to everybody. We're going to die. Listen, it's in the court system. There's proof. There's a written account that it's going to happen. And so day after day, they were fearful and threatened by this edict that had been drawn by the king's ring. And they thought that there is no way that they'll ever get out of this. And so they were rattled. 
yet. Our God remained in complete control even when the termination and the execution notice had been printed and been read and had been given to Haman. So he says, kill and annihilate the Jews. So look at their response to this. Read on with me. Verse 10 or verse 12 says, then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province into the language of each of all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his known ring. In other words, it will happen. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with others to destroy and what? Kill and what? Annihilate how many Jews? All the Jews. Young and what? Women and what? And on the single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Then it says this, a copy of the text of the edict was, was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. In other words, the day is coming. The, the text has been written. The edict has been proclaimed. It's in the court system. It's in the, the president of the United States' hands. It will happen and nothing will stop it. Verse 15, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was what? Bewildered. You see, one of Satan's greatest weapons and most powerful tactics, I believe, is this. It's psychological. Like, how many things have you concerned yourself with for hours, days, weeks, and months, wondering, oh, I hope this doesn't happen. If this happens, that means that happens. How many hours have you wasted running your mind down this path and then it never played out? It never, how many times have you taken time? Oh, if this happens, that means that happens. And oh man, if she finds out and he finds out, oh, if someone finds out about my past, oh, they'll bring this up. How many times has the enemy allowed your mind to be bewildered psychologically with his attacks? I believe one of the greatest strongholds the enemy has on us is in our minds. That's why we're supposed to regularly renew our minds, replace it with scripture, day after day, replace it with truths instead of lies. And there is no doubt that if these Jews didn't rely on God and didn't know who he was and believed that he was in complete control, day after day, they're wondering, oh, I got six weeks, I got eight weeks, I mean, he's gonna die, what am I gonna do? They were bewildered, the text says. Could God actually be working right now? Like, like, this just pause. Hit, this hit the pause button. Pause. Where's God? I mean, why didn't Mordecai get recognized? Like, why didn't someone say, hey, wait a minute. It was a Jew that saved you. <laughs> Jews. Jews rule. Why? Why didn't God just allow Mordecai's name to surface? And why did he let Haman make a choice to kill all these people? Could God actually be working? Was this God's will to have all the Jews killed? See, it's in these kind of times that I personally, I go right to Proverbs 21.1. It says, the heart of the king is in the hand of God and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he chooses. You see, when I look at our world today, I'm not 
bewildered because my God is in complete control. And some of us like, oh, I, I watched this on CNN. Oh, I watched this on Fox. Pastor Jim, did you say that? I did. And so did my God. And he's not like in heaven going, oh, what am I going to do about that? He's in complete control. See, it's a psychological warfare on our minds and the enemy knows where to attack you. God is at work sometimes even when we think he isn't. I find it interesting here too. Here's classic, classic Satan. Like when this all takes place, when, when Hammond goes before the king to talk about these groups of people, he doesn't even refer to them as a group of people. He doesn't say they're Jewish. He just says those people. To him, they're just like, just, just a group of people. They don't even have names. Yet my Bible tells us our God knows the number of hairs on our head and he knows us by name. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He personally knows everything about us. Do you realize Satan has been doing that kind of work from the beginning? He wants to depersonalize Christians. Do you realize during the Holocaust, did you, do, you know, even the, the Jews that were wiped out then, they weren't known by their names. You know how they were known? They were known by a number that was tattooed on their bodies, like number 74321, dead. Satan loves to depersonalize. God personalizes and not only knows us by name, but has a plan and a purpose for our life that includes our very families. Keep in mind that all the while this decree is being broadcast, the queen is a Jew. So imagine like King Xerxes waking up one day and think, oh man, I took my ring and I notarized this edict and he, he's going to find out one day that, hey, my wife is a queen. And that means, hey, honey, I got bad news for you. You're dead. How could this ever turn into good? Think about that for a second, if you can, again. How could the king have just executed his own queen? Chapter 4, what happens next? It's not looking good for the Jews. Chapter 4, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai weeps, buries himself in sackcloth. But remember, the queen is a Jew, and it sounds like God needs to do something miraculous here. Look at verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to be put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Like, she didn't know that the execution notice had been given to the Jews. Like, she wasn't even aware, and she's the queen. Why? Because Haman never said what people group he was talking about. So verse 6 says this, So Hat went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation. 
which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Haddock went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. Verse 12, look what it says. When Esther's word were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. So this is doomsday for the Jews. Like, not only are all the Jews going to die, but Esther, she got word back to Mor- from Mordecai, says, you're going to die too. And by the way, the king doesn't know that you're a Jew. It's already been written. The edict has been drawn up. It's in print. So there's no change in it. It's like it's been mailed to all the people. It's been sent out. And the king's orders can't change. They're not going to change. And so I just want to let you know, that's why I'm weeping. That's why I'm wailing. That's why I'm begging for God's mercy, because we're all going to die. And so Mordecai and his people were rattled. Meanwhile, Esther is just beginning to get this word. Trouble is on the doorstep. Verse 14 one of the most significant scripture passages in the word of God says this. Four, verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a what? Time as what? I personally believe this with all of my heart, that just take sequentially your thing that you're facing. You might have been praying for this, this like you might have been praying for this, this dad or this mother for 20 years to come to Christ. And it's like you're saying, God, where are you? How come you're not doing? You might have just got your termination notice. You might be on the tail end of six years of this, this barricade in your life. You, you might have just begun this journey. It might be three months and you're waiting for this breakthrough in business. You might just be, be like two years into the sickness and you've been wondering, God, where are you at? God, God, I'm, I'm getting rattled here. God, are you even there? Listen to me. There's going to come a time in God's perfect will and his perfect plan. This might be the day before you get the breakthrough. This might be one week next Sunday it might come. So every day that we wake up, we got to live with reality that God's not sleeping on his watch. That God has a perfect plan. That today could be the day that determination is turned into a, a, an arrival card to go there. See, when we live that way, we live with hope instead of with death. And some of us have been waiting. I don't know where that process or that timeline is. In this case, it's been four years since Mordecai has been recognized. And it seems hopeless for the Jews. But listen, God is working. And they're getting really close to the day of breakthrough. And the people of God must hold on and not bail out and try to take it into their own hands. I wonder right now, like how close you are to that thing that you've been taking before God for months, for years I wonder if, if, if tonight could be the night 
that this thing that you've been longing for, like, there it is. Yet how many of us will be so close to that and will turn around and try to put it back into our hands and we'll lose traction on what we could have given over to God and he could have come through for us in an amazing way for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai knew that this was the day for Esther. This, this is it. This is it, Esther. Like, this is why God allowed you to be adopted by me. This is, this is your chance to stand up for the Jewish nation. This is your chance to step out in faith and go before a king. By the way, you couldn't walk in front of a Persian king unless he extended his gold scepter. And if you tried to enter his gates without him extending the scepter, guess what Persian law said? You had your head lopped off, you died. So she was putting it all on the line. Like, had been 30 days, she wasn't even sure that when she went into the entrance that he would extend it. And if he didn't extend it and she walked before he extended, she would die. Like, this is the moment, Esther, for such a time as this. This is why I made you. This is why I built you. This is what I made you for. This is the moment, Esther, that you get to step out in faith and say, God, use me. And I wonder in this room, what that moment, that day, that time might be for you. And I wonder how many of us say, God, I'm stepping out, God, even if it means the death of me. Because seriously, when we die, do we really lose? We just unzip our earthly bodies and the soul comes out of us and we spend eternity with Jesus. Is it really bad to die? Come on. Is it really bad to die as a Christian? You see it when we have a heavenly perspective and we're not too attached to earthly stuff, we don't care. It's like, okay, God, I'm stepping through in faith. I'm gonna boldly stand in the, the school that I'm in. God, I'm gonna boldly stand in the workplace. God, I'm gonna believe even though the court system has sent me a notice that says it's over. I believe, my God, with you, it is possible and you're still working. See, it depends whose advice you listen to. You know, advice is cheap, by the way. Like I hear people say, well, someone told me at work that I should just give up. Because, you know, if I was in your shoes, then I would give up. You know, advice is cheap because the person that gave the advice doesn't have to live with the circumstances of it. So listen to me. Proverbs is clear. Meet with godly, multiple of counselors. They're going to say, hey, trust in God. Don't trust in man. Trust in God. So Esther has this moment of time for such a time as this to stand up for the nation of Israel and say, with God, I will go before the king and believe that my God will protect me and he will save my people. God will never present a plan before us that he will not provide a way out. So what does she do? Look at verse 16, then verse 15. Then Esther sent the reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, then so be it, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. You see, Satan is bereft of the power he wants so badly. He's bloodthirsty on seeing, he is bloodthirsty to see us die. But really, does Satan really win? Like, 
The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Like, the very thing that he wants to do, he wants us murdered, he wants us killed, he wants to see us gone. But really, even if our physical bodies are murdered, even if our physical bodies die, does Satan really win after we unzip our earthly bodies and the soul that lives forever is in eternity? He never wins! Satan's best plan can't thwart God's purposes. So what happens? Look at verse 5. On the third day, Esther was put, put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. I mean, she's putting it all on the line. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. She had no idea whether or not he would extend the gold scepter. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. <laughs> and I wonder why. Because she believed by faith in her God. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached, it says, and touched the tip of the scepter. This was the moment when Esther had to walk through her fear. There's moments in our lives, some of you have yet to walk through the fear of the thing that is holding you back from becoming all that Christ wants you to be. There comes a point in our adversities and crises that we must lay it all on the line for Jesus because if we don't, our distrust of God will tattle on us, telling Satan how to get us. Let me explain this for a second. We say things like, if that would ever happen to me, I would just die. Let me give you a, just, just a, a small snapshot of what a Satan is capable of. He sees our reactions, our responses, our actions, and so he gathers information about us. But listen, he can't read our minds. It's impossible for him. Only God who is sovereign can read our minds. So everything that you do, he, he has a, a written account about your life. And so he's looking for weaknesses that you and I have. And what he wants to do is attack those weaknesses. So you know what he does? If he sees us and we shrug our heads like, or we go, it's someone. Or if he sees that we have an attitude towards someone, bam, he writes it down. Or if he hears us say, boy, if that ever happened to me, I would die. He writes it down. So all these things that reveal your weaknesses, Satan comes after. And he writes it in his book. And so this morning when you got up, before you got up, Satan and his demons had a written record of your weaknesses. And that's what he's coming after. He's not coming after your strength. So listen to me. We must gain our strength in the Lord, even though all hell and chaos is crumbling and happening around us. We can fully rely and trust in God because he is not rattled by our circumstances. That's the difference to living a victorious life and overcoming. Two people can look at the same thing, be the same, have the same situation. One fully trusts and one is doubting. When doubt and fear surface, the enemy sees it. And you know what he does? He attacks the psychological mind that we carry. But Esther says, hey, I'm going to stand up in the face of adversity. And so look what happens. Verse 2, when he saw Queen Esther, he let her in. And then verse 3, then the king asked, what is it? One translation said that he saw a puzzled look on her face and realized, something's wrong with you, Esther. What up? Queen Esther asks, what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come together to a, today to a banquet I have prepared for him. 
Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in the presence, he was filled with what? Rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. By the way, guess what? He says, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. He was happy thinking this, that, oh, he doesn't know the queen is a Jew. He thinks the queen wants to come and just honor him and say, man, I, 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 I'm backing you 100%. So he goes home as most would. I mean, I like to celebrate with my wife and my kids and I'll go home and think, man, look what God has done. Like, the, let's celebrate. The, 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 the nearest and dearest people to me are, 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 is my wife and my kids. And, and I love celebrating with them. And, and so he's doing the same. And he's saying, by the way, not only that, I got the only invite to be with the queen. It's going to be a good day. He has no idea that God is working behind the scenes to turn this situation that seemed like the extermination and annihilation of the Jews to a completely different outcome. And by the way, he is so, so, so angry with Mordecai. I want to speak about that for a second. We often talk about addictions. We talk about addictions to alcohol. We talk about addictions to drugs. We talk about addictions to work. We talk about addictions to pornography. We talk about addictions to sexual immorality. We talk about a variety of addictions, but we rarely talk about addictions, the mental addictions that we have against other people. Let me explain that for a second. Some of you in this room and some of you in the link and some of you across the world have an addiction towards someone that's wronged you. Someone that, that, you, that in your mind thinks stops you from being what you need to be. And so you have this mental bondage. Like you're in bondage to this person. It's like every time you think about him, you get riled up. And it's like you can't stop thinking about it. Even if you try, you wake up. And then you, you'll see something that they wrote or you'll see a picture of them or you meet them in the workplace or you see them at church or somewhere. It's like all of a sudden this rage comes out of you because you have this mental and this, this addiction towards someone else mentally. And you're in bondage. And there are many in this room and there are many, maybe it's against an ex. Maybe it's against a coworker or boss or teacher or coach or a pastor or... And, and so every time you think about it, it's like, and so you just constantly want to bring it up and talk about all their ill will. And it's like, and you don't even realize it. You are mentally addicted to another person. 
Hammond was in mental bondage towards Mordecai. Every time he saw him, he wanted to wring his neck. I wonder in this room, how many of you are in bondage to another person? And the thoughts of that person keep you awake at night. The thoughts of that person keep you from loving that person. The thoughts of that person keep you from believing in that person. The thoughts about that person which aren't true continues to every time you see them, slander, gossip, bitterness comes out of you. That's where Hammond is at. And what happens is rage develops towards that person. And so what does he want to do? He's burning with a passion to kill the Jews, especially because he hates hates Mordecai. One of the most eye-opening things is when this takes place, and look what happens. He has so much anger against him. So verse 14 says, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reach into the heights of 50 cubics, 75 feet in the air, and ask the king in the, in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the kings to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion did what for Haman? What's the word? Delighted. Why did it delight him? Because he was in bondage. He was addicted to this man. And in his mind, it would finally close the gap in the story about him. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. So think about this. He goes out and builds this gallows. 75, it's like, Two and a half more times this building. I mean, it's not, it's like, imagine impaling. By the way, you know what impaling means? It means to take a person and jam them on this pole. Like, it's an incredible work. I mean, most were 10 to 12 feet high. He wanted 75 feet because he was enraged with this man who wouldn't kneel in front of him. And he wanted all the country to look far from a distance and say, that's what happens when you don't do what I say. 75 feet in the air, his body would be impaled and most likely his head would be lopped off. But God's favor is about to rest upon Esther and Mordecai in a special way. I want to speak about favor for a second because there's a difference between God's power working through you and God's favor working over you. There's a huge difference. Like, You could have the power of God in your life when you present truth because God's word stands up regardless and his word is powerful. Like you you could speak God's power over someone because of his word and because of the nature of his word, it's living and active. It, it, It continue to move. Yet there's a huge difference between God's favor on someone. In fact, here's what we say. Think about in the relational context. If you have a friend and you want them to do something for you, We often say this, hey, can you do me a a favor? And so what that normally means is this, I'll do you a favor because, not because I have to, but because I have a favorable disposition towards you. And so I'll do this before you because I like you, I enjoy you. And so we go to people and we often say, hey, can you do a favor for me? Because we're not expecting it, but we're asking them to go over and above. And so when we really have a, 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 something that's huge, we go to someone and we say, will you do a really what kind of favor for me? Big. Now think about that from a relational aspect. When we go to God, 
I often pray this way. Okay, God, God, will you do a really big favor for us? <laughs> By the way, why wouldn't a God of the universe who is your father, why wouldn't he want us to ask? We ask human beings to do it all the time. Let me explain how favor plays out in someone's life, and I'm going to tell you, show you how it plays out in this life. Favor is almost always a decision someone else makes on your behalf. It always results from a decision someone makes on your behalf. Let me explain. You could be doing all the right things yet not be receiving the favor of God. You could have two people, a man and a girl, or two girls or two men, doing all the right things as we think, checking off the list, doing all the stuff, yet somehow this person gets the favor of God and receives so much more. Why is that? Why is it that God chooses to have favor on some and not favor on the others? Let let me flesh it out this way. The power of God moves in and through us to advance his purpose and release his blessing. The power of God works in and through us to release his purpose and blessing. However, the favor of God moves in and through others to release his purpose and blessing upon our lives. I've seen it happen over and 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 over again. Where God uses someone else. Favor is almost always connected to someone else standing up, recognizing you, bringing your name into the circle, like telling you, pull that resume out. Hey, let's see this patent. Would you show that one? It's, it's, it's someone stepping in, submitting your name to a game show, went out of nowhere. You, you, you had nothing to do with God's favor always works through other people. And in this case, it's going to work through another person on behalf of the Jews called Mordecai. So how do we get the favor of God? How do you position yourselves to receive the favor of God? It's not rocket science. By the way, you can't be jealous. You can't be, you can't be envious. You can't have undealt with sin in your life. There must be a pure heart and a pure mind. You must walk in obedience. You must walk in purity. You must also take this gift and talent. Like you can have two people who have the same gift and the same talent. You must be a person who takes this gift and talent and relies solely upon God and gives him credit. It's not slothful, but works hard and doesn't lose the gift or talent. Like many Christians that I know have been given a gift and a talent and they haven't used it for years. Let me tell you, the favor of God will not rest on you if you don't take that gift and talent and use it for his kingdom. You must walk in humility. You see, it's the humble that God exalts and lifts up, places favor on. And we must rely upon totally upon God and know that anything good that happens to us is completely because Christ worked through us. I can show you people that I know, like, man, everything they touch, it appears. Like, every idea, like, they could be doing the same stuff as this guy, but somehow, because of the favor of God rests on this person, it's like, they get the next thing. Like, they're always out in front because favor rests upon them. Favor is about to rest upon Esther and Mordecai because there are battles right now raging in the heavenlies where God is at work. Look at chapter six so we know all this is happening. It says, that night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign to be brought in and what to him? Uh Uh-oh, guess what's going to happen? They're going to get like to chapter 7 and and, and verse 4. And they're going to read, 
a man by the name of Mordecai, a Jew, was sitting at the city gate, and he told the attendants and Queen Esther that you, King Xerxes, would be assassinated, and you better get rid of Big Thana and the two thugs, because if you don't, guess what? You will die. And so they began reading these journals. God allowed him, or allowed allowed Xerxes not to sleep, and Samia took over. One translation said, said it this way, the Lord took sleep from Xerxes that night. And he says, please read to me so I can sleep. Bring some milk in and just read so I can fall asleep. And so they're reading, and they come across this guy, but then Mordecai, and so then Xerxes says, by the way, whatever happened to him, did he get rewarded for that? Verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asks. Nothing has been done for him, his attendant answered. Oh, and is it about to happen? Verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai, whose name was just happened to be mentioned that he saved the king. On a pole he had set up for him, a 75-foot pole he had set up for him. God never takes his eyes off of us or the clock ticking over us. Then verse 5 says, his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. And the king ordered, bring him in. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? He had no idea he was thinking about Mordecai. Now Haman thought to himself, surely it's me, like, Okay, can you imagine you're, you're standing there? Can you imagine his face? All right, talk to my face, talk to my face. Don't show him that you're really excited about this. What should they do for me? I am so good. Picture, he thinks it's about him. So in his mind, you know, bring out the best this and that. And this is what he says. This is what should be done. Look what it says. Verse seven says, so he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, thinking it was himself, have them bring a royal robe, like size 38, you know, chest. That's what I wear. The king has worn. And a horse, you know, bring an Arabian, like with a black uh, uh, a mane and white face. You know, that's kind of like. One with a royal crest placed on its head. Then, then, then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor. And lead him on the horse to the city streets so they can worship me. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe. Now, pause. Just, just imagine this. He says, go at once. Get the robe. And he's thinking, <laughs> look at me, world. Here I am. So picture, he's thinking it's going to happen for him. And it says, go at once, the king commanded Hammond, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for who? Mordecai. I would love to take an Instagram photo right there. (laughs) And it would be the most ugly face you've ever seen. The saddest face, like, and there would be a caption bubble that said, oh, stink. Get the robe and the horse and do for Mordecai, the Jew who sets at the city's king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. In other words, th- that's a great idea. I love your ideas. Verse 11, so Haman got the robe and the horse. Now picture this. Who wrote Mordecai? Haman had to put the robe that he wanted. He wanted the Nike swoosh. 
And he put it on him. Like, can you imagine that face of his? And led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. He told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. That's a supportive wife, isn't it? Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared for him. Listen to me, Grace. When it seems like the battle is lost, it isn't. Where do you need to believe that truth today? Like, where does someone write something about your future that you're believing, even though the judge said this, even though the employer said this, even though the doctor report says this, even though this dream has been shut down by this person and that person, even though... You know what God does with these kind of edicts when he wants to work? You know what he does with them? It's a piece of paper to our God. It's just like, oh yeah, you write your paper. You put your signet ring on. Listen, I'm God. Imagine how God might be working on your behalf right now. But listen. You will never, ever, ever, ever witness it unless you step out in faith and believe it. We can't let a little bump in our road rattle our world. Your day is coming. Listen to me. This was four years. Listen. Continue to walk in faith. Listen. And some of you are, I know your stories. Some of you have been patiently waiting upon God for this to happen. And you're almost, listen, this could be the three-year, 364th day moment. You know what that means? Tonight could be the night. Don't ever give up in trusting our God. Never. And why? Because when we are rattled, God remains in control. And here's what I know to be true. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind me the God of the angel armies. Lord, help us today to believe that. Lord, so many of us were in bondage to people. We're reeling in sin. We live in doubt and fear. We've had all kinds of things mailed to us in the mail. We've heard people speak things over us and we're believing these things to be true. God, when you want so much more, Oh, Lord, I pray that we would step out in faith like Esther did for such a time as this and say, I am really willing to perish. I have to perish to step out in faith so that I can see and believe and be part of this thing called faith. Lord, I pray for my people today. I pray when they leave this room that this thing that's looming over them, that they lose sleep. I pray that they wouldn't be mentally in bondage to to, to all the, 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 the evils of it or the, the, what people are saying that can happen, but they would look the other way and say, with God, 
all things are possible because I know he goes before me and I know who stands behind me. My God of the angel armies. In Jesus' name, amen.